so excited today that we have a special guest, Jacqueline Charles of the Miami Herald. And uh, as listeners of this podcast know, we've been thinking a lot about Haiti and debt that arguably is owed to Haiti because of historical injustices. And particularly the Haitian independence debt of 1825. Uh, But in the context of doing background research on the Haitian independence debt and talking to some of the lawyers who were involved in thinking about claims, the matter of the island of Lanmas came up. And that got us curious to read more about it. And we came across the work of Jacqueline Charles in the Miami Herald. Now it turned out Jacqueline has written also about the Haitian independence debt of 1825, I think there was an article in 2003, Uh, but we very much wanted her on the podcast. Now she's been incredibly busy recently given events in Haiti, uh, but she was kind enough to make a little time for us. I also want to welcome to our podcast, uh, my dear, dear friend, Guy Charles, uh, who's been thinking about these issues with us and will be part of our conversation. And so Jacqueline, if we may begin with a little background, I'd love to hear about how you got interested in the matter of these historical claims and in La Navas in particular. So, As the Haiti correspondent at the Miami Herald, um, I have this secret desire to make sure that I have visited every reach of Haiti possible. So there are a couple of places that are on my bucket list, so to speak. And La Navas has always been there. Um, I don't remember exactly when I first heard or learned about this island because there are a couple of other um, little islands around Haiti, but I visited um, La Tortue and I've written several stories about that island and its entire connection to Pirates of the Caribbean um, and even the word barbecue. But La Navas always fascinated me because as I started to do research, I realized that though this island is literally off the coast of Haiti, Haiti didn't have access to it. Haitians didn't have access to it. And the United States was still claiming it. So how did this particular story come about? Ironically, it came about through Kanye West and Ile de la Tortue. So Kanye West visited Haiti, uh, made a surprise visit to that island. It was the second visit to a Caribbean um, island. First, he went to Jamaica a week before, caused a little scandal there, and then boom, he drops into Hispaniola. And Hispaniola is the island that Haiti and the Dominican Republic share. So when he arrived in Haiti, the president greeted him and they were in the north of the country in Cape Haitian, which is the second largest city. And then they decided to go and visit um, Ile de la Tortue. So 
while he was there, there was this whole controversy that erupted where he went onto his Twitter and said that the Haitian government had given him this island, Ile de la Tortue. Well, I knew the story of Ile de la Tortue from prior articles that there's a guy in Texas who basically owns a 100-year lease, 99-year lease on the development rights that he inherited from his father who had received you know, those development rights as part of um, this whole scam that Papa Francois Duvalier, the dictator, was trying to do. The the the, the guy in question, his father owned a um, a boat, and Papa Doc wanted this boat to be able to go around the world to say we love Papa Doc, and so they didn't have any money eventually, and just. This is, I don't know if everybody's ever seen the movie Pirate Radio, but Pirate Radio was actually based off of this real life story of this boat that was outside of British waters and was playing the Beatles song because the Beatles were banned inside um, Britain. So out of all of this, this arrangement came for Ile de la Tortue. So I did a story that basically says, Kanye, you know, the government of Haiti could not have given you this island because somebody else, you know, technically quote unquote owns it. And so after, you know, we did that story and it got a lot of, uh, you know, readers, people, you know, read it, they were really interested. I said to my boss, I said, you know, that's not the only island um, that Haiti owns is controversial where somebody else is laying claim to it. And he says, really? I said, yeah. I said, there's this island off the coast covered in bird poop and the United States <laughs> lays claim to it. And he's like, oh, wow. So he was just completely fascinated. And then that's when I decided uh, to do this story about La Navas. And let me just be clear, you know, we'd already had a story about it maybe 15 years ago when this first issue came up and it came up in court documents and in a, in a court claim. Um, but I decided to, to revisit it and just sort of, you know, put it out there for people and silently ask this question, why does the United States claim or lay claim to an island that's closer to Haiti than it is to Florida? And Jacqueline, if you can tell us a little bit about the... I guess the origins of the U.S. claim to the island, which as I understand it, um, relate to the, the Guano Islands Act. Um, but also the, the, tell us a bit about why the U.S. still claims it today. So guano was a, you know, was a valuable fertilizer 150 plus years ago. And I sort of get the desire to extract the fertilizer. But like, what is the the source of the U.S. government's continuing claim to the island? Well, let's start with the first question that's easier than the second, um, because the second will probably just be more speculation. But the first, you know, your first question, you're right, it's the Guano Islands Act. Guano was a very valuable fertilizer back in those days. And there was a law that was passed in the United States that basically said that any American citizen that found a piece of rock uh, that had guano, you know, could lay claim to it. And so you had the situation here that happened um, in respect to Navassa. 
and eventually you had mining that was going on there and you have a connection to um, a mining company and also this town in the Carolinas. So, and we can get back a little bit later to, you know, to the history, but we see that there were a number of these islands or pieces of rocks that fell onto, the, onto that. And what's interesting is that today, a lot of them have been returned um, to others, right? To, to their rightful owners. Um, but yet we see with Haiti that the United States still lays claim to this island, which is about 35 miles west of the southern peninsula of Haiti and 85 miles northeast of Jamaica. Why does the U.S. still lay claim to it? You know, I tried to get this answer from them and I did not get very far um, in terms of why this United States still think that they have a right to this. A couple of years ago, when there was a lawsuit that was going on, they sent some group of scientists down there. They discovered that you know there was a bird that they thought had been extinct, but it wasn't. Um, and there are other environmental treasures, um, you know, that are you know that are that are there. Um, I think one big thing is that you haven't really had a Haitian government in recent history that has really pursued or pushed this. We did have this um, definitely in the past. And, you know, when you, when I read the history of this, I saw that, you know, in these, you know, 1800s, 1900s, you had Haitian leaders who really were very much against imperialism and basically were ready to tell the United States, you know, no, you don't, you don't own this. And, and one of them even sent a warship out. Um, but today, presently, um, you know, I think the last Haitian president that pressed a claim is, is Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And that was about, you know, the debt that France owes uh, the uh, owes Haiti. And so, you know, and it's widely believed among Haitians and non-Haitians that that was an impetus for, you know, his ouster. I, I don't think it's too, I think that's very simplified, you know, um, description of, of, of why he was ousted and what happened. But when you talk to people, a lot of them make that connection, right? Between him pressing for that claim and then his ouster in 2004. So I think a large part of your question is probably because Haiti has impressed this issue. Uh, a former Haitian diplomat, when I spoke to him about this, uh, he also thought that it's because the United States probably believed that if they turn this over to Haiti, that it will be destroyed, it will not be um, taken care of. Uh, you know, Haiti is a country that is highly deforested. Uh, you know, it, it, it's got its environmental challenges. And, you know, if that is the case, then that in itself too is kind of problematic, right? Um, but no, I, I really do not have a concrete answer other than the fact that the United States still lays claim based on these court challenges or its notion of the Guano Act, which, you know, I suspect that if a very good lawyer were to challenge this, they probably would be able to show precedent with other um, islands that were returned and really raise the question legally in terms of but how is it that you still lay claim to this on an act that's questionable in the first place? Jackie, if I, if I may, and by the way, it's a, a pleasure to be talking to you again, uh, given sort of the amazing work that you have done um, 
high quality over a number of years on covering the Caribbean, including Haiti. Uh, so thank you for, for joining us and talking to us. Um, so what is, why should we care? And the we is sort of the broad we, um, whether it is you could think about Haitians and Haiti or the diaspora or Americans broadly, um, what's at stake in this dispute? And why did you find this interesting to write about? Why do you think people ought to care um, about this long historical um, dispute over um, this tiny island? I'm gonna read you a, a quote in my story. And I think that that quote sort of gets at the heart of, of of the question that anyone should should ask themselves. I mean, people may ultimately disagree on what their answers are, but um, but let me just first say, for me, it was just this curiosity, this question of how can the United States lay claim to an island that's closer to Haiti than Florida? Now, I say this as somebody who was born in a dependent territory, I, originally from Turks and Caicos, I am of Haitian descent. But I was born in Turks and Caicos, which today is a British dependent territory. But it's a British dependent territory because it chooses to, to remain so. It, it had opportunities in, in the past to break away and it, and it did not. Um, we see the United States has claims to um, the, yeah, Samoa, you know, um, we see you know, Puerto Rico. So yeah, so so that geography, you see the precedent, but just for me, you know, covering Haiti, knowing Haiti, and knowing that this remains a controversial issue in, 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 in Haiti, you know, among older Haitians who know the history, or who study the history, this is something that people still talk about. So Baruch Hersfeld, who is a New York entrepreneur, um, who, like me, was always fascinated by the whole history of Navas Island. And even once thought about, you know what, we should take some pregnant Haitian women there, have them give birth, and then they can just lay claim to American citizenship. I mean, he's just one of these like sort of wild, you know, people, but hey, his ideas are pretty far-fetched. But when I called him up and asked him about it, you know, he said to me, the whole thing is a legacy of racism. Um, you know, from America's history, you know, and then he was made the point that he thought that now with President Biden and this whole Black Lives Matter movement, um, that, the, that this returning this island back um, to Haiti, erasing this legacy should be part of America's new, you know, a new, a new foreign policy. Um, but again, I think that, you know, one of the biggest impediments is you have to have a government, a president in a country who makes this an issue and say, you know what, that island belongs to us and we want it. And I don't see any movement of that right now. I think the people, you know, other than those who are very passionate about Haiti's history and its trajectory, um, you know, it matters to them a lot. And then the fishermen who live near that peninsula who have absolutely no access 
to the waters there. It matters a lot to them because apparently, you know, there's um, there's a lot of conch and, and, and fish and other things there that can serve as their, as their nutrient. Um, and what's, and let me just say as a side note, you know, you look at Haiti, you look at the challenges it has with food security. Um, you know, there's huge numbers of, of, of patients who are food insecure and it's always having issues in terms of, you know, being able to grow agriculture and fertilizer is very expensive. And here's an island that's covered with poop. You know, Guamo that a couple of years ago started to make a comeback. And you're like, wow, this is like a huge, you know, irony here, right? Here's an island that's covered with this stuff that could help. And here's an, uh, another place nearby that's starving for it. Uh, I did ask US authorities about that because, you know, in the story, you know, we talk about this guy, Bill Warren, who has this claim to suit and he has this idea that he thinks that he's going to be mining guano um, in 2021. But they told me that the mining of guano is, um, is illegal. So it's no longer allowed, and that's because of the environmental impact. So, so they won't even allow that on uh, on that island. But, but yes, it's a very. I, I think that part of it is a very imperialistic. You know, we are the United States, and we know better. And 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 you're still seeing that today, presently, and nobody's really asked a question. You know, in the halls of Congress lately, or or in the circles of government, or you know, why do we still own this, and how can we defend it? Jacqueline, um, if I may ask, I mean, there are so many questions I want to ask you, historical and contemporary and having to do with uh, identity. And uh, hopefully I'll get to ask all of them in between uh, Mark and Guy. But uh, the question that I want to ask you now before we go to our break is um, why people are not more interested. So when I think about the claim to La Navas, I don't think of it as much in terms of getting the island back. I'm also a, a post-colonial subject. I was born in Trinidad. But the things that matter to me more as a post-colonial subject are things like the ability to immigrate uh, or work in the richer part of the world, like, for example, the United States and uh, the ability to get a restitution uh, for monies that are owed because property was uh, taken improperly. So, I mean, I would imagine that Haiti would have a claim for an enormous dollar amount uh, against the United States. And if the United States is so worried about the environment, which is somewhat implausible given our last four years of uh, the Trump administration, uh, but let's say they are, they're, they're just so concerned about it, uh, let, them, let them give uh, Haitians better immigration rights in exchange uh, for them keeping the island and helping preserve the environment. So. I guess all of that is again to ask, why is this not seen in just dollar terms? We could get stuff, this gives us leverage, let's use it because the, the, the equities seem so clearly on the side of Haiti. If we go back uh, 
in history and think, look, the U.S. claimed that this was an island that nobody owned. And that was clearly not true if we look at uh, historical documents going back as far as the 1400s. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think the key in there is post-colonial subject, right? So as a post-colonial subject, and, and I see this throughout the Caribbean, you know, there is this identity and there is an identity that is rooted in your fight for independence and that redefining of the relationship with the former mother country and this current independent country. And while Haiti was the first black, you know, republic and an independent, the reality is, is that it has always had to fight for that post-colonial identity. And it had to fight France, it had to fight the United States. And one can well argue that today it continues to fight. When we look today, what's presently happening in the country, you know, there's increasingly a resentment on the ground among Haitians on the overreach of the international community led by the United States in their domestic affairs, in their domestic politics. Yet at the same time, there's a huge psychological impact the U.S. has in that country. You know, when the U.S. says, as an example, just like I said last week, you know, the U.S. was dismissive of the opposition and critical of the opposition and civil society's ability to put Haitians in the street. It basically said the Haitians were tired of, quote unquote, lockdowns and power grabs. And on this past Sunday, we saw Haitians responded by the thousands, some say tens of thousands, into the street. That was clearly a message to the U.S. and the international community that they wanted to respond to. So, you know, for the Haitian collectively, it's a question of sort of fighting your battle. And I go back again to the example of President Aristide in France. You know, that is a claim that is probably much clearer than the Navassa claim, right? Haiti paid this money and it was a lot of money and it continued to have ripple effects today um, in terms of you know, how much it had to give to France for its independence. And it, it has affected France in terms of how far it goes or it won't go in terms of Haiti. You know, French troops on Haitian soil, it enrages people. So the French come in, you know, with other countries to sort of soften that if, if, if they do. Uh, but, Aristide pressed the issue and boom, in 2004, he was out. I'm not saying, and I will tell you, that's not the reason why, you know, he, he was ousted, but for a lot of Haitians, it is. So when you ask them now to go up against not just their former colonial master, but the United States on something, you have them saying, really, is this gonna be worth it? And let's be clear, you have a country today that has weak institutions, it's deeply polarized, it's had four US military interventions in the last 30 years, and it continues to be reliant on the United States for international assistance. And so I think that if it had more of a post-colonial mindset in terms of truly being independent, not just on paper, but sovereignty, you saw it in every ways, I think that, yeah, you probably would see more of a push for this claim that you saw in the 1800s by other Haitian leaders. And again, those leaders, they pushed forward and they were pushed back 
and, and they didn't get anywhere. But I think that it's, yeah, can, you know, this little country go up against this big giant, which would be the U.S.? Um, it would need support. And I think that it would need support from people in the United States who, who care about the fact that uh, the United States is still laying claim, a very questionable claim to an island off the coast of, of, of a country. Um, I, I, we should go to the break, but I can't help but um, ask, uh, turn this to Guy because Guy works on voting rights and uh, teaches con law and civil rights claim. And I'm guessing that his uh, wonderful brain is thinking about these analogies to civil rights claims where, you know, within an unjust league, uh, within an unjust legal system, the question has always been asked, you know, the, the odds are stacked against us. Why use the legal system, which is full of biased adjudicators? Why use the legal system to try and get what we surely know we will not get? Um, and I think there are, there are sort of, um, there have always been arguments about this. And I'm wondering whether uh, Guy sees any analogies to this before we go to break. And uh, Guy, can I yeah, impose I mean, on you? Yeah, so um, that's a great question, Mitu. And that really raises a point for me um, to ask um, Jacqueline about. Um, so, and, and here's the way that I would think of the, the way that I would frame the frustration, which is probably a little bit broader than that. Um, and, and I also speak as somebody who was born in Haiti, um, though I grew up in the United States, I spent the first eight and a half years of my life in Haiti. Uh, so th there, there's, a, there's a lot there that, um, that forces me to think and, and, and troubles me. But here's the way that I would think about it. The problem is how do we think about a context in which um, people are deeply affected, um, but they have very little voice, right? And, and then the question is, well, what is the structure within which they can enact voice? So the international legal community um, doesn't provide a mechanism. The internal Haitian politics framework does not provide a mechanism. And the legal framework does not provide a mechanism for effective voice, um, right? So traditionally we might say, okay, let's, um, let's use the legal framework, but that doesn't work. And what you saw in the American civil rights movement um, is it was preceded by civil rights politics and agitation. Now, of course, so much can happen in Haiti, but um, that's far away from USI, so it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. So I guess the way to, for me to think about this is to ask Jackie, what is it that the Haitian diaspora, uh, because that seems to be the one group of people who might be able to have voice and use different types of mechanisms, uh, maybe they can't use the legal system, whether it's domestic in the U.S. or international, um, but certainly they can do some combination of civil rights activism and, um, and, and use um, the legal system, maybe in the way in which the civil rights communities have done 
over the years in order to give voice to their complaints. And so I'm curious um, how you think about that, Jackie, because the MITU raises the right, right? That's, you, you're right, MITU, that's the right question, but the, but the, but the problem is what's the alternative? Um, and so that's what has been, I've been racking my brain over trying to think about what, what the alternative is. And, and I'm wondering, Jackie, what you think about um, the diaspora as a possibility here. Well, let me break that down in two. I, I think that the legal route and, you know, despite all of the biases and issues that we know that exist, right? But you have an opportunity to lay out an argument, you have laws, you've got, even when um, it may try to stifle your voice, you know, the facts are there and, and you get yourself a good lawyer, they, they know how to, you know, to work that system. Um, so I think that, you know, there is that recourse and that's why it, ex it exists, you know, that that's one of the benefits of having a strong institution. The diaspora, you know, I was asked this question yesterday again on the current context of what's happening in Haiti. Um, I think on paper, when we think about a diaspora, if you think, for instance, of the Jewish diaspora, you've seen their ability to move legislation, to move foreign policy, and to be heard. Unfortunately, with the Haitian diaspora, we have not seen that. And one of the issues that have come up or people put out there is the fact that the diaspora um, doesn't speak with one voice and is not um, united. And I don't know if that is a cop-out or if that is a fair argument. Um, yes, it is based on fact. I mean, the diaspora, there, there are various, various diaspora organizations. Um, when people say the Haitian diaspora, who are you talking about? You know, today you have uh, a diaspora where you have uh, young millennials, for instance, who were not born in Haiti, who don't speak Creole, but you know what? Somebody told them that they are Haitian and they are fascinated by this country and they want to know more, but they're not interested in the negative stories about protests turning violent or the political instability. They don't, they don't care for the image of Haiti as a basket case. They want, you know, the beautiful beaches, the, the, the huge mountains. Um, that's the Haiti that they are interested in. And that's the Haiti that before COVID, they were flying back and forth to. Can they care enough to, to, to carry this issue? there's a possibility, right? They're interested in, 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 in the history and they're, and they're passionate about, you know, rights um, in various forms. So maybe that's something for them. You have a diaspora that has battled uh, against the image of being both people. And today they are, you know, elected officials. Um, they are the parents of first generation Haitian American doctors and nurses and other professionals. Um, but they're still battered, right, by, by, by that image. And every time something negative happens in Haiti, it takes them back to that period where they were both people. Um, do they have the fortitude to, to, to do that? Um, and then you have another group in the middle that 
today is less concerned about Haitian politics, but more concerned about what's happening in the United States. And they're looking to run for political office in the US where they are running for political office. Um, and they are finding you know, the power behind politics. Is this something that, that they can do? I think, again, if this is something for the diaspora, it would have to be sort of a collective effort with different, you know, thinking, thinking of it as a table and each leg sort of represents part of the diaspora experience, part of that, you know, your millennial, you know, your, your boat people, your, your diasporas who, you know, arrived in New York, who are children of, you know, exiles of the, of the dictatorship. Um, but they would have to want to make this, this an issue and they would have to agree on it. And again, um, I don't see it. I think, you know, when you look at what's happening in Haiti today, most Haitians are more consumed by the current reality and how do you get out of this cycle of crises upon crises upon crises. Um, and with every crisis, you have less and less Haitians who are giving up on that dream of they're gonna return back to Haiti and retire there. You know, that's that's the dream of a lot of us who are from, you know, countries and find ourselves in the United States, you know, this, this desire to go back. So this hasn't been on their um, on their radar in terms of I'm angry about it, but am I angry and passionate enough about it to press this claim? You know, um, and again, I think that that I mean, somebody has to light the match first and you see how the flame takes, but I don't see anyone lighting that match right now. Well, thank you, Jacqueline. And let's take a, a short break and then maybe we can ask you a few more questions when we come back. So Jacqueline, can I ask a question that is not quite a repeat of, but a, a follow up, I think, on the discussion we were having right before the break, which is goes something like this. How do you feel about the effort to talk about these kinds of historical injustices as legal claims in, in the language of law and um, legal uh, legal uh, claims and rights? So I, I'm, I ask the question because that way of talking comes naturally to me as a lawyer, but I, I also find it very limiting and very confining so that the broader historical context gets kind of lost. And, and just as an example, the, the case that, that I can think of talking about whether the U.S had any right to lay claim to La Navas in the first place is a murder case that went to the Supreme Court in the 1890s. That, that's really a case about a worker rebellion against cruel um, supervisors and labor practices. And there's this very brief, offhand, unsatisfying discussion about how, well, the president says it's U.S. territory, and so it's, it's U.S. territory. So I, I guess um, I'm wondering whether you think it's productive 
to legalize these kinds of discussions or whether maybe there's something unproductive or, or at least unsatisfying about it? I think it depends on, on the context and on what's the ultimate goal. I think that when you are talking about these claims in the legal context, you have the ability to invite other people into the conversation because you are removing the emotions out of that conversation, out of that debate. And for some people, that is a good thing, right? It, when you're dealing with subjects that are very emotional, highly emotional, or people feel that it's more of a condemnation that you're making as opposed to an argument. I think if you can show you know, the legal arguments in terms of why this makes sense or why this should be considered, um, it's a neutral point for people to come around. On the other hand, like as you noted, you know, during this argument in the Supreme Court case, it was raised, oh, the president says we own it, so we own it. You know, and now, you know, hindsight being 2020, that would have been a place, right, where, you know, if you had a judge that was um, open to this, where you brought in that that historical relationship and you appeal to the fact of the history, the legacy, what is the message that is being sent here. So I think today we have both of those. Um, I think that given the whole Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, uh, given the US's history you know, with Haiti, um, this, there is room for that historical conversation and there definitely is and should be. Um, and then I also think that the other side of that is that legal argument in terms of let's going back and looking at this case. And there was, I think one other case as well where this claim was laid to, but let's look at the fallacy of that. I mean, again, how does the United States grant its citizens the right to go anywhere in the world and lay claim to a piece of rock or an island? I mean, just when we start there, I mean, it's just this whole, you know, idea of imperialism, arrogance, we are the United States, but why is it that the United States had this authority more so than a UK or France? I mean, but it's back to, you know, what the, the, the Spaniard, you know, discovering um, the, the Americas, you know, Christopher Columbus going all around the globe and saying, oh, you know, this belongs to Spain, this belongs, you know. So it's, it's in that same narrative. And are we today continuing to perpetuate that narrative when, you know, today there's even the debate that says, why do we even celebrate Columbus Day, right? You've seen this action where people have said, no, we're not, we're not going to be commemorating Columbus Day. We're going to be calling it something else or it's no longer a holiday. So you, you, you have those conversations that are taking place, but the challenge is how do you make La Navas part of that conversation? Um, how do you bring it in there and then you have a real debate and then have that debate turn into some kind of action? So, um, Jacqueline, can we stay on the historical theme for uh, just a bit? And I'm interested in the context. I was rereading uh, your wonderful article on La Navas and the dates um, stood out for me. So, if, if memory serves, uh, 
the this U.S. Uh, explorer or um, searcher for guano uh, lays claim to La Navas in the 1850s, 1857 or thereabouts. And uh, Haiti, uh, Haiti's claim is not considered when the U.S. approves this. Uh, and if I remember the statute correctly, the guano statute, it says, it says you can take these islands in the name of the U.S. if they have guano and if they don't belong to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. was implicitly saying this island doesn't belong to anybody else, even though it was 35 miles off of Haiti's coast and it's part of the original French maps and the Spanish maps of Hispaniola. So one explanation I'm wondering whether uh, this is the case is that in 1857, the US did not even recognize Haiti as a nation in part because the US still had slavery and Haiti was a country born out of slave rebellion and the US was quite hostile uh, to the idea of slave rebellion. So is this a messy context of slavery, uh, and recognition a part of the story? Or is it just plain racism? Or can it be both? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the United States' um, refusal to recognize Haiti, is that not racism? Um, you know, they would probably argue it was because they didn't want to encourage slave rebellions, you know, elsewhere in the hemisphere. Um, but there was that, right? And historically, you can look and say, okay, so if you don't recognize Haiti, which means that Haiti doesn't have claims to this island, then why don't you think that France does? And maybe they did, and maybe French, France said, uh, you know, we don't, we don't recognize those people anymore either. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's when you look at the history and the timeline, it is very fascinating in terms of the attitude of the United States going into this. And uh, if you recall too, that there was um, an emperor, Faustin Ali Soluk, who learned in 1858 about the mining and he dispatched Haitian warships to Navas to claim Haiti's sovereignty and to force the workers to stop. And then the company that was mining, you know, the Coopers, they called the U.S. military protection under the Guano Act. And the U.S. Secretary of State, Louis Cass, soon dispatched an American warship, <laughs> you know, down there, um, forcing Haiti, you know, to retreat. And then there was this sort of diplomatic shuffle that was going on, you know, in Haiti. But again, it did not um, get anywhere. And then in 1872, Haiti again pressed its claim, you know, arguing that Christopher Columbus's 1493 discovery of the island of Hispaniola, which Haiti shares with the DR, you know, included Navassa. You know, when Spain ceded that western third of Hispaniola in 1697 in this treaty to France, you know, it had Navassa there. And it was again included in French King Charles X's 1825 recognition of Haiti and return for the payment of 150 million francs. So yeah, the US was very much aware of all of this, but I think the US didn't care. And probably because of the US's refusal to recognize Haiti, that it accepted Duncan's claim and basically said, yeah, nobody owns this and we're just going to go full steam ahead. Jackie, if I may um, bring now the uh, French debt into this. Um, and as you know, 
um, much better than I do, uh, the way that Haiti has been buffeted. Um, so we have history, um, right? Sort of the history with the US, history with France um, that has been um, path determinant, um, but also contemporary history. So the question is, if we were to think about how to unscramble this egg, both the Lana Vas um, fiasco and Haiti's um, dependence upon the US, uh, but also if we bring the, the French debt into it and Haiti's historical dependence um, and less so, but historical dependence upon France, um, what's the resolution here? How should we think about the way forward, um, the path that gets us out of this process, and what would that mean for the future of what is going on in Haiti itself, um, particularly as we think about the unrest that is going on at the moment, um, right? What, how do you think these, the, the egg can be unscrambled when we take into account both of those historical um, matters um, into play? I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, I think that it, it, it is it part of any conversation in any room. I am not certain that either one of these issues are being brought up by present day diplomats, Haitian diplomats. Um, and again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think that it is this, you know, unfortunate dependence that that Haiti has. Um, on the international community, you know, to get it out of a fix. Um, you know, on the one hand, Haitians, you know, are always crying about decrying their, their sovereignty. But at the same time, when their leaders are problematic, they're looking for these very entities to come in and save the day. Um, and so I think that again, it becomes sort of in a list of priorities, right? For, for, for the Haitians who are caught up in the struggle and who are trying to get stability and, and you know, salvage you know, democracy in their homeland. But for any Haitian leaders who do take the mantle, you know, are they willing to, to go head to head um, you know, on these issues? You know, they, they always pitch themselves as nationalists but what I've always seen that they're nationalists up to a certain point, because when you have to go into the room, you know, what they call the blanc, you know, the foreigner, um, you know, is worth it. Um, again, and, and I go back to the issue with Aristide and raising that French debt on, you know, the bicentennial anniversary of Haiti. Um, I, I think that it still has this lasting, you know, effect. Uh, but I think, again, the way you get out of this is that, you know, we're talking about this issue because we're fascinated by it. But, you know, it would be interesting if this conversation, kind of conversation was taking place in circles of academia in Haiti or in, you know, within the bureaucracies of saying, you know, hey, let's let's do this. But let me also say, too, that one of the unfortunate things that I have found in, 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 in Haiti and, and as Haitians, we sort of joke about it sometimes, but it's, it's serious. And that is that we don't know our history. You know, we, we don't really, you know, I don't know what kind of history they're teaching in the schools, but um, one reason why you probably don't have this collective outcry is 
I don't know, what's, is there even a section on Navassa Island in the books, in the history books in Haiti? Um, and do young Haitians um, understand, um, you know, the history of this, where it's rooted, you know, do, do they care enough? But in order for people to care, they have to first know about it, right? So I think that there's a large amount of work that, that is cut out. I don't see it as being impossible. Um, because it's happened before. I mean, look, in 1825, we didn't have social media and we didn't have, you know, the internet, but you had a Haitian leader who was interested in this and wanted to push back on this because he saw it as an attack on his country's sovereignty. And we saw it again in 1872. Um, and I think that to get out of that, that's what you need presently, whether today or tomorrow or, you know, five years down the line, you need Haitian leaders who are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take up this issue um, because it's a, it's, it's a historical wrong that needs to be righted. So uh, Jacqueline, um, on the same theme, uh, I want to come back to a point that you made uh, early in our conversation, which was you had said that you thought the, the claim, the debt claim uh, from 1825 was perhaps stronger than the claim for uh, restitution on La Navas. And it's very interesting that you say that because for me, thinking about sort of legal claims that I could bring in court under international law, uh, with the caveat that I'm no expert in international law, but I, I do uh, spend a lot of time thinking about international debt, and we're talking about a debt claim. The, the claim for La Navas seems much clearer to me, whereas the 1825 claim, just getting into court uh, is such a barrier. Yet, uh, consistent with your intuition, if I look at the literature out there uh, from NGOs, uh, you know, just the general literature on people interested in Haiti and imperialism, 99.9% .9 of it uh, seems to be about the independence debt of 1825, and almost nothing is on uh, La Navas. And I do wonder whether one explanation for this has to do with uh, the imperial uh, countries we're talking about. So we're talking about France and the United States. And when I talk to my friends in France, my uh, economist friends who study international debt, they all know about La Navas and uh, they all have strong views. And usually those are strong views in uh, along the lines of this was a horrible historic injustice that we are ashamed of. On the other hand, uh, my sense is that very few people in the United States know anything about the Guano Island. Maybe uh, Christina Duffy at Columbia University, who is the world's leading expert on the Guano Islands. But other than that, um, you know, the, uh, this, this is really uh, unknown. So just wondering whether the contemporary context of these two countries, France and the United States, vis-a-vis -vis their relation, in terms of their relationships vis-a-vis -vis Haiti is one part of the explanation for your intuition. 
Well, first of all, remember, I'm not a lawyer, right? So I'm looking at it just from this contemporary viewpoint. And I think you hit on it, the fact that everybody knows about the, you know, independence debt. Um, and so as just somebody who is not a lawyer, who's not looking at the legalese, who can't argue legally one way or another, well, Haiti gave up its right to sue when it decided to pay, or here's what the legal um, agreement was between Haiti and France. I'm just looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, we all know that Haiti had to pay France this money in order to uh, be, you know, to be recognized. And so there's a lot of literature, there's a lot of stuff out there, there's things that could be argued one way or another. La Navas, as you also mentioned, a lot of people don't even know about it, right? They don't, they don't know about the Guano Act, much less than the fact that there's an island off the coast of Haiti. I think there's even um, some other ones in um, somewhere near Jamaica that the U.S. also laid claim to. Um, and then, you know, and when you put this into historical context, it raises a lot of questions and it makes a lot of people squirmish. I'm not surprised that French scholars know about La Navas because, you know, if especially if they are studying France's um, you know, reach outside of France and the fact that La Navas was in, you know, the the, the claims, France's claims, um, the same way that they would know about the Louisiana Purchase and, and, and how that came about, you would know about La Navas and then you would see the break, um, in, you know, in that. So I think, yeah, so it's back to in terms of, you know, education and, um, you know, the France's independence to Haiti always comes up in the context of Haitian independence and the relationship to its colonial master, which was France. I mean, people don't think about the United States with a relationship with Haiti outside of today's present contemporary um, relationship. People don't know that, you know, at one point the British were, you know, were also on Española. So that's why you have like a lot of English words in Creole. You know, they, they, they don't know about that. They only see they only see France. So I think it goes back again to sort of the education where we, and, and I think that's what I wanted to do with the, with the story was first, you know, said, hey, let me tell you a story. And the story started here and here's what happened. And the story is still incomplete, you know? And so what happens next, you, you know, Anybody can take up the mantle with this and, and, and run with this, but continue that discussion at debate. But I wanted to put it out there and to say, this is a little known story about a place and a relationship with one country and another country. And I wanted you to think about it in a historical context. You guys are now thinking about it in a legal context, but I also want you to think about it in a contemporary context. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for for joining us i would like to keep asking questions all day but i know you have much uh, more important things to do so all i can say is we were really really thrilled that you were able to join us i can't tell you how excited we were when we found out that we could make it work and that you had enough time to to come so thank you so much and um maybe if we're really lucky we can continue this conversation in some other forum yeah, no, we'd be happy to. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for being interested, you know. Yeah.